Welcome to Revelation Ancient Prophecy. This series is a detailed, in-depth study of the book of Revelation. You will discover just how relevant to our day the prophecies of Revelation really are. Here is your presenter, Pastor Byron Neustraten. And a very good evening and thank you for attending again to one of the seminars of the book of Revelation. Uh, wonderful book and I, I trust you're following it closely because you need, need to build a basis and then we, um, we can go further into the book and uh, incredible as it is. Could I invite you just to bow your heads for a moment? Heavenly Father, as we go into your word again, we pray that we will receive the understanding which can only come from you. Help us to accept the authority of your word, the veracity, and Lord, we thank you for providing it for us. Open our minds and our hearts. Now we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are still with the seven churches. We are in, uh, in chapter 2 where we had a look at the messages to the seven churches. You remember the location and the selection of the seven churches, a dual application, one on the day and one as a era in the Christian history of the Christian church. We looked at Ephesus, the apostolic church, which would care for the first century. And uh, we, recognized, we recognized that era in the descriptions. Smyrna is the one of the churches that suffered so much persecution. And it's interesting, by the way, that the church of Smyrna has no, uh, what shall I say, rebuke. Uh, it is a church that sincerely suffered until the legal legality of the uh, Christian church as a religion was, was recognized and established by, uh, by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Pergamum represents the church from 312, 313 to 538. That was the, the time when it, it became actually fashionable to be a Christian. And unfortunately, uh, in, in that, that a lot of errors came into the church. The history is very clear, and there's a lot of information available on that, that errors crept into the church, no longer through the back door, but the front door, and that was a terrible thing. The church of Tyatira was uh, also discussed. Tyatira is really, if you like, from 538. 538 is that typical date when you look at history and uh, when the last of the opposing forces, the Ostrogoths, were defeated by the Justinian armies and the, the, the Bishop of Rome had a, a clear hand to do pretty well uh, what he wanted to do. In 533 BC, Justinian, the emperor, the East Roman emperor, had invested all authority in the Bishop of Rome. And so it's fascinating that 538 uh, coincided actually with the destruction of Ravenna, the capital of the Ostrogoths, and they were pretty well defeated, and they actually disappeared. They disappeared from the scene uh, of this world. And so we come a post, what shall I say? We're now entering a new era. And this new era is a fascinating one. It's really the era of the Reformation. It becomes the era of the Protestants. 
Now, the word Protestant protesting already gives you an, a clue what happened. There is a, a protest going on against the practice and, uh, and the, the prescription of what one should believe as so dominantly was prevailing by the medieval church. There were significant protests against that and it gathered pace, it got traction, and it found support in even some of the secular institutions and some governments ended up siding very strongly with the Reformation. An incredible story, an incredible story. God raised up some wonderful people there. But when you look, when you look at what the message is to these church, the Protestant church, it's quite severe. Have a look at this. Uh, it says to the angel of the church in Sardis, these things says he, notice, who has the seven spirits of God. That is Jesus Christ. Remember chapter one? There is the description. And the seven stars which he held in his right hand. Remember? And then he goes on to say this. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Now, if I had to replace that word name or give it an explanation or a content, I would say reputation. That you have a reputation that you are alive. I mean, they came from blatant error back to the scripture. Sola Scriptura was the, the battle cry. And sola gratia, only grace, and sola fida, only faith, and all of these things. Uh, they were observed initially by the Protestants. And so the Reformation. And it started off so well. Uh, some, of the early, uh, some of the early reformers, even preceding uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin. I think of, uh, of Whitecliffe, Tyndale, uh, John Huss, Jan Huss. Uh, some of the incredible Waldensian figures uh, and the early Moravians, there were already quite a few reformers that had been active. But 1517 really was one of those dates when Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 thesis on the door at his place of work in Württemberg, the cathedral. And boy, did that spark a controversy which reverberated through the whole church. And then here is the rebuke. That's quite a rebuke. You have a name that you are alive, but you're really, really dead. And that's a very sad qualification. What happened? What happened with the churches as they came into the, what shall we say, the new and better understandings from Scripture. If only they would have kept going, keep an open mind, be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that they could be led into all truths. The temptation was given into where they would produce creeds, creedal statements, and they confined their new understandings to the creed as they understood it at the day to be correct. And then they stopped learning. But not only stopped learning, they stopped accepting. 
And that led to some incredible positions, incredible actions. I have to say this. I have to say this. The persecutions of the medieval church were horrendous. No doubt about it. But can you believe that those who were persecuted ended up actually being the persecutors themselves? For anybody that came after them with an understanding, with, an, with, with, a, with a, a clear insight into the will of God through the scriptures. I'll give you one example. The Baptists, the Anabaptists, were persecuted. Europe, England, uh, they were called Mennonites later on. They were persecuted. Um, I'll give you another example. The Methodists were persecuted by the Church of England. And were there, were there in fact murders? Were there in fact uh, executions? Yes, I'm sad to say there were. And that applied to the Anglicans, that applied to the Lutherans, that applied to the Calvinists and some of the others. It's very sad what happened. They seemed to close their mind. They had come thus far and they would go no further. And that is sad. And there was even a linkage between the church and the state. Lutheran, uh, the Lutheran teachings became part of the doctrine, became part of the state church in Germany and Scandinavia. And with very severe consequences. So it was not all good what happened during the Reformation. And here you can understand the advice given through the angels, through the message. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. There were things that were valuable that they learned. Righteousness by faith was certainly something that they were starting to understand. Luther had preached and taught on that. But you know what the reformers themselves often used to teach was not necessarily followed up by their churches, the churches that were named after them. And here it goes on to say, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. The danger is to lose the truth that they had discovered. For I have not found your works perfect before God. They had not fulfilled the full commission. The Protestant movement should have maintained their movement. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you do, will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, to make this clear, this is not a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to a visitation by God because of the insufficiency of their actions. They were commissioned to bring the truth to the world as they discovered, rediscovered the scriptures. But they failed to do that, really, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white. The walking in white means the sins and shortcomings will be covered. And the righteousness of Christ 
will guarantee their eternity. They are worthy. And there were so many good men and women that were raised up during the Reformation. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, which is interesting. Um, that keeps on coming back. The white is the purity, non-defiled. And I will not blot out. Note what it says here. And I will not blot out his or her name from the book of life. And note this. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now what are we to make of this? You know, if you go to the book of Daniel and you go to the seventh chapter, you get a picture of a scene in heaven that actually constitutes a court setting. You read that chapter. The part where Daniel looks up and he looks into heaven and he sees billions of angels. He sees God the Father. And then he notes the entrance of one like the Son of Man. And that is Christ. And so the court starts. We know that in the judgment, that finds place in heaven. We will not be present ourselves. But Jesus, should we accept him, acts on our part. He becomes our advocate. It's interesting also that all judgment is given to the Son. So he is also the judge. He is the judge and our advocate, which is really synonymous with the halakha, the Jewish law. Where if you would be, would be brought before a court, that the judge became your advocate, defending you until guilt was established by two or more witnesses. Just thought I'll let you know. It does explain what we see here. Because the judgment in heaven really deals, really deals with God's people. It deals with God's people and God himself, his character. Is he just justified to save you, to blot out all the records of your sin and to save you into eternity? That is what that is about. And this is a very clear reference even though this is still future during the days of the Reformation, that this is going to find place. Interesting statement here. He who has an ear, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The message comes really from the Spirit. Sardis, the era of the Protestantism, the era of the Reformation, the tragedy of creedal confessions limiting them. There's a spiritual coldness, exclusiveness, reclusiveness that so often developed between the various churches. And then there was, of course, in the 17th and the 18th century, the unstoppable rationalism, the age of reason, when man depends on his own wisdom and capacity for reason, and perhaps it's the, the science, scientific, some of the scientific developments and progressions that gave men the idea that the Bible was no longer needed. Rationalism was very detrimental to the scriptures. 
The name Sardis might mean that which remains, you could say that. Um, the Church of the Reformation is the clear identification of this era. And if I had to put a time limit on it, I would say anywhere from about 1517, that moment when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Württemberg, to the middle, actually, of the 18th century, the 1750s. I've put down 1798 because the conclusion in 1798 was that the papacy, the papal Rome, that still opposed so strongly the reformers, executed so many we will never know how many people were killed and executed. And so uh, the era, the power of the papacy came to an official halt in 1798 when Pope Pius VI was taken prisoner by General Berthier of the Napoleonic army. It's interesting. And so that was Sardis. Now we go to the next church to the angel in the church of Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia means brotherly love. The city was established in the early part of the second century AD. It was built by Atalus II in uh, commemoration of his beloved brother, Eumertus uh, II. He had a, such a strong regard for his brother and affinity, and that's how uh, that uh, place was actually uh, built and came into being. The era that we are talking about in Philadelphia is really the latter part of the 18th centuries. So the 1700s, late 1700s, and the early 19th century. And when you go to history, and when you look at the text here, the message that's given to the church, you can collate the two and uh, you'll find uh, it synchronizes very well. These things says he who is holy, who is true, and who has the key of David. Now this is a messianic statement. This is Christ, this is Jesus. It's a messianic statement. Uh, the, the keys of Eliakim that looked after the household of David. You find this prediction in the, uh, you find this one uh, in, in Isaiah. Note what it says, and this is fascinating. He, the one who holds the key of David, messianic, it's Christ, who opens and no one shuts. Remember that. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I, I just included a little picture of that portable sanctuary that they had in the desert which functioned exactly like the Solomonic Temple and the Zerubbabel Temple, the Second Temple. Here is the procedure. When the high priest, once a year, would go into the sanctuary, on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the most holy place, the Koresko de Shim, only once a year. And when he, when he went into the most holy place, the door the door into the holy place was closed off. No one was to enter when he would open the door, which was actually a curtain, when he would open the door into the most holy place. That's where that expression comes from. That's one meaning and one application. And this becomes true, as you will see, 
right there. And again, it affirms the, what shall I say, the historicity of the ongoing, of the ongoing eras of the Christian church. Here we have, here we have a very clear indication that at the end of the Philadelphian church era, we have a new era which involves what we like to call the anti-typical uh, yeah, judgment that finds place in heaven before Christ returns. So much linked to the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. And we will talk about that another time because Revelation does. So we will come to that. But I, I, I really wanted you to understand this. There is another application. We have this saying that when God opens a door, that means there's an opportunity. That certainly has the application here in the Church of Philadelphia. This was an era when God opened opportunities so incredible. Uh, we want to have a look at that. He says, I know your works, so you have said before you, I have set before you an open door. He's saying, I am making this possible. I open a door, give you opportunity, and no one can shut it. No one can stop it, for you have just a little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Note the rest. Indeed, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Notice, indeed, I'll make them come and worship before your feet. Now, what is meant by that? As I said, the era of Sardis said what happened as they became cold, rigid, unbending, only adhering to their own doctrine as they defined it. They also persecuted, I mentioned that. They did. They were antagonistic to further truth as it unfolded. Um, I, I, I would like to, and I'll probably come back to this, on the, on the what shall I say, the, uh, the ministry of the Wesley brothers. If ever there were the people that were harassed by the established church, the Church of England, um, often jostled and, and abused for more than three decades. They had a ministry so powerful that in the end, even the major politicians had to recognize the incredible contribution that they had made to the nation of England. And they were not the only ones. In, 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 in that, you could say that those who claimed to be Christians claim to be Jews, right? Spiritual Israel. Those who claim to be spiritual Israel were really the seed of Satan trying to stop further truth that was proclaimed by people like George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers. There's a whole range of them that brought in further truth, clearer understanding, and stronger reformation. So indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Uh, how could I read that? Well, maybe they would convert, and they did convert, that those who opposed them ultimately looked, and that is true particularly of the Wesley brothers, they looked at the, they looked at the message that was given, and they accepted the message ultimately. 
after decades they did. And to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. You know, God asked us sometimes <clears throat> to persevere, not to give up. You know, you look at the life of Jesus and you look at all the obstacles that he had daily, day after day. Uh, we need to follow his example and to persevere. Very important that we do. I will also keep you, notice, it's interesting, from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. So it's not in the era of Philadelphia. No, it comes later to the next church. To test those who dwell on the earth. That makes it very interesting when we go to the next church, which then, by the way, will be the final era. And we will. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. The Church of Philadelphia, the caring, the brotherly, loving Church, is granted a crown, he who overcomes, and I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, a pillar, why a pillar? Well, the pillar doesn't move, the pillar stays. You will stay in the temple of God in a matter of speaking. And he, the one that overcomes, that becomes the pillar, the permanent fixture in the temple of God, shall go out no more. And I will write on him, I love this, the name of my God. Now replace that word name by character. I will put right on him the nature, the character of his father. That is what Jesus says. And the name of the city of my God, the new city where our citizenship is, is of course the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is our home, our new home. It's interesting, you know, you, here we are, we so often worry about our own accommodation and how we pay for our, for our expenses residency-wise. Isn't it interesting to know? Oh, this is realistic. Isn't it interesting to know? that if you follow Jesus and you accept him, there is already a place for you in heaven fully paid for, no mortgage, for you. He said that in John the 14th chapter. Never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. He talks about the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and he says, which will come down from heaven from my God. And you find that in the 21st uh, chapter of the book of Revelation. And I will write on him, that person who overcomes, who becomes the pillar, my new name. You are owned by him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the church of Philadelphia. The church, the missionary church. It is a missionary church. Um, 
I, I think of, well, the Waldensis, but particularly also the Moravians. There is a particular person I like to mention, Count Zinzendorf. Google it. What an incredible ministry that man had. The, the advent of the YMCA, which is a young man's Christian association that has done so much good in that era. I think of that godly man, William Booth of the Salvation Army. I think, and I've mentioned them, John and Charles Wesley, thousands of kilometers on horseback, thousands. And for decades they did that. Under the most forbidding and abusive circumstances, they maintained their ministry powerfully, wonderful, when you read, very humbling when you read their ministry, very humbling, very humbling. And of course, there was also, and that is something that should be mentioned, the Advent Movement. This was the era, I think of a man like William Miller, but there were Henry Winter, there were others, there were Manuel de la Cunza, there were the child preachers in Scandinavia. We don't have the scope of time to go into this. But there at the 19th century, so we're looking now the beginning of the 1800s, there was a movement, there was an expectancy in different places of the world that people studied the time prophecies of the book of Daniel. And as they studied Daniel and they studied Revelation, they could see that there was a culmination uh, to be finding place of this world. They recognized that Jesus was going to come back and the emphasis was on the return of Jesus. And yes, they had not had everything correctly interpreted, but they certainly because of the time prophecies, and we'll talk about that another time, they had a an understanding that there was a coming of Christ that was imminent. There was a tremendous revival. Yes, there was also a bitter disappointment. And by the way, the book of Revelation speaks on that. It's a pity we forget these things, but the Advent movement was an incredible movement uh, across the number of continents and so many different places in the world, this found place. And it was a, uh, a tremendous experience for those people who returned fully and totally to their God and to God's word, the Bible. I think of Judson who went to Burma. I think of Morrison who went to China. I think of William Carey to India. I think of Moffat and Livingston in Africa. These were some of the best known missionaries, totally fully dedicated to the well-being of their fellow men. I think of the British Bible Society translating the Bible in hundreds of languages. The American Bible Society founded in 1816. You could say that the Philadelphian church from 1798, and now I've got to put it till 1844. Why 1844? 1844 is the beginning of the next church, the next era. 1844 is the era of the Laodicean church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these things says the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. You see, Laodicea is actually a composite of two words. And it means a people being judged. A people adjudged. That is what it means. They are lukewarm, but that's not what it means. Laos, Laodicea, means really just that. A people adjudged. It was built by... Uh, 
a particular king, Theos was his name, uh, Antiochus Theos, for his wife Laodice. He loved her that much that he built her a city. And so he did. Um, but there it is. The, the name is a people being judged. If you can remember that, that'd be most helpful. We just talked about an investigative judgment that finds place in heaven. I mentioned Daniel, the seventh chapter, where it's by way of vision, Daniel sees this. And the book of Revelation is coming back to this theme in a very big way. Worthwhile to remember this. These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. The beginning of creation of God. Now the beginning of creation of God does not mean that he is the first. Jesus is not the first of creation. The word in the, word in the Greek, arche, in its uh, active uh, tense, which is applicable here, means he is the cause of all creation. Not the beginning as in the first bit that has been created. No, no, no. He is the very cause of creation. He causes all creation. And that, of course, is in harmony with the rest of the Bible. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Uh, I, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's a very strong rejection. And by the way, the rebuke of this church is the severest of all the seven. The application of the water that is lukewarm and doesn't taste good, that is to be vomited out, is perhaps finding its background in the fact that there was an aqueduct of water that would come into the city of Laodicea. But across that water, as it came from the mountains, was a stream of a, a, a natural source. There was a hot spring, and it had particular minerals in that water, which made it rather unpleasant and gave it a, a not, a, not a very favorable flavor. And uh, the water was unpleasant to drink because of the way it tasted and the fact that it was lukewarm. Uh, just uh, and something that's interesting. Because you say, I have rich and become wealthy. Here is the thing. They thought they've got it made. Pride is an almost incurable sin. And that is the sin of Laodicea. I have need of nothing. How are you going to, how are you going to bring Christ to people who believe they've got it all? Rich, become wealthy, pride, need of nothing, believing in the self-sufficiency. And you do not know, Jesus says to them, that you are wretched. This is his church that he's speaking to. You're miserable, you are poor, you are blind, you are naked. In fact, I counsel you, he says, to buy from me gold in the fire. What does gold refined in the fire mean? Someone puts it very nicely. It is love, it is faith that works through love. I like that. Faith that works through love. 
I really like that. That you may be rich, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you will be closed. That's the important part, that you are covered in his righteousness. That the shame of your nakedness, that is your sinfulness, may not be revealed because you will be covered. Anoint your eyes with eyesalve. You know, it's interesting, they used to have a temple there to a deity called Menkaro. This, this particular temple specialized in an eyesalve, which you could apply to your eyes and it would be very good for your eyes. So there it is. There is the reference to the eyesalve that you may see or may see clearly. And then there's a little statement here that indicates very clearly that he loves the people of his church. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now, when things are tough, not good, and you think maybe God is forgetting you or angry with you, could it be that he's expressing his love because he's trying to pull you through whatever he has placed upon you in your ways to come back to him? It's a thought as many as he said. And this is to the church in the last days. As many as I love, he says, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is knocking. You just got to hear it. He stands at the door. He does not open the door. If anyone hears my voice, and what? Opens the door. The door here in Laodicea is a door that can only be opened from the inside. And here is the truth. It is when you open your heart to Jesus that he can come in. And he wants to come in. Have a look at this. I will come into him or her and dine with him and he with me. He wants the fellowship. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame, sat down with my father on his throne. Can you imagine? What does it mean being on the throne with him? It means that as you entered heaven, there is any question, anything you would like to know. You might like to know why some people didn't make it. People that were dear to you. People that you might have respected. And they're not there. And that you may then be led into the conditions, the, the facts and all the issues pertaining to the judgment of that person and you might be able to see why God couldn't save them. There are things to be learned about the universe, particularly creation. I can imagine the things that we will learn because we do share his throne. That is, in a matter of speaking, he will let us into the things that he has decided. That's wonderful. That will be the closeness that we will have. This is a very big promise that God makes to the end time church. Huge promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Laodicea. Well, Laodicea is the remnant church. That's what it is. A remnant church, like the apostolic church, the early first Christian church. It's got to be like it. And the book of Revelation has a lot to say about the remnant church. And we'll come back to that another time. A people judged, I told you. That is what it means. From 1844 to the second coming. We hope in the course of the book of Revelation to make plain the significance of that date, 1844, because we get that date from the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel and the book of Revelation go together. In fact, you could say the things that were not explained in the book of Daniel are certainly explained in the book of Revelation, which makes it such a strong connection between the two apocalyptic prophetic books. And so here it is from 1844, the second coming, which closes the history of planet Earth. Next week, we're going to look at the throne room in heaven. A lot of symbolism, but incredible that we get a look into the throne room of heaven next week. I hope you join me again next week as we Join with the revelator, John, as he is taken into the spirit to this incredible scene, which he then shares with us in the fourth and the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. May God bless you. Uh, could I invite you just to bow your heads, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were able to study your word once again and whilst it's not always easy to understand, as we continue and persevere, that the spirit who inspired the writer may open the truth in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, bless us now. Keep us safe, keep us well. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You've been listening to Revelation Ancient Prophecy with Pastor Baron Neustraten, brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio. For more information on this series, visit waitarachurch.org.au. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from His lighthouse evermore. But to us He gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the way. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing. For the 
lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the way. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. Trim your feeble lap, my brother. Some poor sailor, tempest tossed, trying now to make the harbor. In the darkness may be lost Let the lower lights be burning Send a gleam across the way Some poor fainting, struggling seaman You may rescue, you may save Capelladridge sang, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. Coming up next, the Photo Sisters will sing, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. Sovereign Ruler of the Skies, ever gracious, ever wise. All my times are in your hand, all events at your command. His decree who formed the Second birth Now my life to him I owe Where he leads me I will go Ever faithful, ever true Keep my heart to only you Since I cannot part from thee Sovereign ruler ever be Hey! 
Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. The story I would like to share with you today is entitled, A Rash Vow, and the subheading for this story, Vow Wisely. And the story may be found in the book of the Bible entitled Judges, chapters 11 and 12. Her name was Anna. I met her when we were toddlers, when our mothers went to the village well to draw some water. At that age, we would not let our mother out of our sight. Shyly, we exchanged names. We soon became great friends and spent most of our days together playing, mothering our little pet fawns and hiding among the grapevines, especially when the grapes were sweet and juicy. That was the start of a friendship that lasted until the worst day of my young life. But I will let Anna tell her story until she can no longer speak for herself. Yes, my name is Anna. My father had an unhappy childhood Though he had a father who loved him and many brothers, not one of those brothers wanted to be his friend. In fact, they were downright hostile and nasty to him, bullying him when he could not defend himself. His name is Jephthah. His mother was not the same mother as his brother's mother. His father's sons hated him for this, though it was not his fault what his father did. When his father, Gilead, my grandfather, died, my brothers cast him out of the family home. He found his way to a country called the land of Tob. Gilead was an ancient name handed down through the centuries. The land of Gilead was on the eastern side of the Jordan River that was taken over when the tribes of Israel invaded Canaan. This experience made my father very bitter for the way his half-brothers treated him. He soon got into bad company, was made their leader because of his great strength and leadership qualities, leading them on raids to plunder farms and villages and rob people when it suited him. This all happened before I was born. When he later married my mother, who also was from Tob, that's when I became part of their family. Of course... Like all fathers, he had wanted a son, but he loved me dearly, and there was plenty of time for my parents to have all the boys they wanted. After all, 
I may be the only daughter they will have. That would make me very special to them, wouldn't it? Some years went by until one day the leading man of Gilead came to see my father because he was a very brave man. He always won the battles he fought. He planned his campaigns very carefully. One plan he used very successfully was to divide his large band of men into smaller groups to ambush his enemies, attacking them from all sides. This gave him and his men the upper hand, confusing their enemies and invariably gaining the victory and all the plunder that went with that. The Gileadites had been in trouble with the Ammonites, who had threatened to attack them. Without a courageous leader, they had decided to ask my father if he would be their leader, not only to fight the Ammonites, but to lead them after that as well. The Ammonites had descended a long time ago when Lot, Abraham's nephew, had a son in his drunkenness by his younger daughter. They had called him Ben-Ammi. I knew that my father Jephthah loved me very much because every time he won a battle, he never ever lost one, he would bring home a present especially for me. This may have been a beautiful jewel he had found on one of the men who had been killed or some trinket made of gold in a pattern we had never seen in our area before. This made me feel very special and when he swept me up in his strong arms, I shrieked with delight. My mother stood by, admiring the strong bond that had formed between my father and me. As I was about to say, there were many heated arguments between Jephthah and the Ammonites. It didn't stop with talking, but turned into real battles and not just a war of words. God gave my father a great victory, and many of the Ammonites were killed. Before the battle... And this is where my story becomes tragic. My father had made a vow to God that if he gave him the victory, then whatever came out of his house when he returned home, he would offer it to the Lord as a burnt offering. For some time, we had been rearing a young orphan lamb in our home. It was allowed to run in and out of the house all through the day. I'm sure now... That was what my father had in mind when he made his vow. When I heard the blast of the victory trumpet approaching our house and the shouts of the men who had fought with my father, I quickly picked up a hand drum and ran out of the house, dancing with glee. I was so proud of my father. At that moment, the shouts I heard gave way to a silence that could be felt, broken only by my father's piercing cry, Oh, my daughter, why did you come out of the house? You have torn my heart out. I have been brought down to the ground with sorrow. I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot deny it. Though only 13, I realised what it was that he must have pledged to God. It was my life that was to be offered to God as a thank offering for the victory he had given my father. Suddenly the peace of God came over me and I told my father that he must do what he had vowed to God. However, would he allow me two months to roam through the mountains with my friends and to weep that I could die a virgin, not experience the beauty of marriage nor the joy of children? You can see now why I said that was the worst day of my life. 
I was among Anna's friends, who kept her company as we wandered through the high country of Gilead, counting off the days when our dear young friend would be placed on the altar, and her life would end in that terrible way. When the dreadful day came and Anna was no longer with her family and all her friends, there was more weeping and wailing than I have ever heard before or since. Jephthah and his still young wife were so distraught, I thought they would never recover, nor would we. The postscript to this story is as follows. When I was older, I learned from those who knew our laws that the vow that Jephthah had made was described as nida, which was the kind that did not have to be fulfilled if it meant performing a wrong act. Only the vow of Chiram must be carried out, as it was a devotion to God that could not be redeemed in some other way. When I understood that, I was furious. Anna did not have to die, but she did, and was willing to cooperate with her father to ensure his vow was fulfilled. That made me very proud of my young friend, who had the same spirit as one of our ancestors, Isaac, and who, I am sure, would have the same heavenly reward. Here now is a quiz for you. Why was Jephthah unhappy as a boy? Where did he go when his father died? Who were the Gileadites having trouble with? And the last question, why was Jephthah so unhappy when he came home after a great victory and saw his daughter come out of the house? You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.